My dad, who is sadly no longer with us, he died in 2013. But my dad, um, I want to tell you a little bit about him. He was really, really good with money. He was a um, federal government employee, so his salary was fixed. It wasn't that he could get ahead by more sales or anything like that, but he had this uncanny gift of being able to take a couple of bucks and turn it into 20, if you know what I mean. And not through get-rich-quick schemes or some lucky breaks, but through a very methodical, systematic way of learning and understanding how the markets work and how to get your money making money. My dad was great with this. He made his own small fortune, if you will, um, on a government employee's salary. And I have um, personally been very blessed by him as a result of that insight he had into the world. Um, he paid for my entire undergraduate tuition, and I was able to walk away without debt. He helped me when I went to buy my first car, and I was coming up a little bit short, and he believed so strongly that you don't get into debt that he covered the gap. I've been blessed personally by his insights, and more importantly, by things that he instilled in me and taught me that's allowed our family to share in similar blessings, I guess you could say, in similar ways. My dad would always talk about really four, or I should say five, key principles, bedrock principles, that he would base his financial decisions on and that guided him through life. But one that I want to share with you today is this. It's the idea that you diversify. The idea that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. The idea that you have multiple income streams, multiple investments, multiple points of income making going on so that if something unforeseen comes along the horizon, it does not debilitate you. And as the winds of the market blow from here to there, you are not suffering cataclysmic loss because you were invested in one single place. Any of you here who are savvy with investing, this is kind of like 101. You know what I'm talking about, the importance of diversification. It guards against that which is unseen and prepares you or gives you security, would you agree, against things that might otherwise be outside of your control. Now, the financial world is not the only place where diversification has proven itself to be invaluable. I've seen this in things like vegetation, forestry, landscaping. Don't plant one kind of tree in your property. Don't plant one kind of tree in your city. I grew up in a town called Elmhurst. What do you think that was named after? And then something called the Dutch elm disease came through. And any botanist or biologist or forester will tell you today, there is an important to a certain kind of eco-diversity so that all of your eggs are not in one basket if some kind of plague or blight or insect should come your way. I've seen this in terms of nutrition. Have you ever found how fad diets that often revolve around eating one kind of food, well, giving you short-term gains, just don't prove to be healthy in the end? 
We don't think about this in terms of diversification, but that's what it really is. Yes, you need protein. Don't cut it out. I remember all the craze in the 80s. High carbs, low protein, no fat. And how many diabetic cases has that led to in our nation today? Of course, it was rebounding against a different way of eating where it was high fat, high protein, and not other things, and heart disease was rampant today. Now, I'm not going to get deep into the woods of what it's like, but can't we all agree that it's important to have fruits and vegetables in your diet? It's important to have protein in your diet? It's important to have complex carbohydrates in your diet. Yes, it is important to have fat in your diet. There is something to be said for a certain diversification of what you eat. And I think of people like Steve Jobs, for example, who would go on these like all-juice diets and live that way. I'm going to do nothing but eat carrots, right? It's just not healthy for you in the end. Common sense has taught us in so many ways, the importance of diversification, that you don't put all of your eggs in one basket, but you have multiple things in play to shore you up, to build into who you are and upon which you can depend on in case the knees are taken out of any single one of those pedestals. Some of us do it instinctually. It's a life lesson that's been imprinted on us, and we just sort of instinctually live that way. Others of us have had to make intentional moves against our own better judgment, knowing the importance of what I'm talking to you about here. But what I have found is that with God, it is diametrically different. I have met people who have taken the same common sense of this world and tried to apply it to the most important thing in life, which is their life, their destiny, their eternity. They're standing before God and try to operate on the same kind of thinking. Don't put all your hope in one place, logic would say, because what if the God that you confess to believe ends up not to be the strongest, not to be the best, not to be the goodest? Can we say goodest here today? Is that an okay word to say in public? What if he proves not to be true? What if it comes to pass that I've based my life on a lie or wishful thinking or a fairy tale? Spread your eternal security around. Place your hope in multiple beings. This is what paganism is literally all about. It's easy to stand in a day like this today in the 21st century and mock those who put their hope in all these multiplicities of gods in the past. But if you get into the logic of what they were doing, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Because what if something takes the knees out from under it? What if it proves not to be as strong as you thought or to actually be true? People's livelihoods have been ruined by living that way. 
putting all their hope and faith in one company, in one organization, in one investment, in one government, even. People's livelihoods have been ruined that way. How much more our very lives? And I've met people, maybe you're here today, who live with a certain sense of caution. Or maybe you call it prudence in your relationship with God about putting all your stock in with him. But the Bible has something very different to say because the people of God are different. Because God is different. God is often different than the common sense wisdom that we see in the world today. And the very first command that you see in the Bible when we come and talk about these things that we call the Ten Commandments is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, all this school year, we are talking about the fact that when we are in God, when we are in Christ, we are fundamentally different. Now, this is not a command to be different This is not something that we need to strive for or achieve for, though that will factor into the mix in a certain kind of secondary way. No, it's just a reality statement. If you are born again in Christ and his spirit is alive in you, he is changing you. You are just going to be de facto different as a result of what God is doing in you. And that is going to set you apart as different. You're going to look different. You're going to think different. You're going to value different. You're going to act different. You're going to prioritize different. You are often going to be in the minority at odds with the prevailing common sense worldview of any day or age. And I have found this to be no more true when it comes to the gods that we put our hope in themselves. God calls us to be different. He says, do not diversify. I want you to put your entire stock in with me. Because I am the biggest, I am the strongest, I am the greatest, I am the truest, I am the one that you can rely on. You can put all of the eggs of your life in my basket right here with me. Are you with me? This is what the invitation of God is is all about. And I love how all these ancient teachers, all these old catechisms, all these old teaching guides put this in a different way. I want to show you a few here today. Luther, Martin Luther, in his small catechism will write this. As he explains the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, he says, well, what does that mean? Well, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. In his large catechism, you know the difference? One is short, one is long. (laughs) He says this, what does it mean to have a God? Or what is God? No, I say it's this. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in is truly your God. Or how about this from the uh, Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church? The first commandment summons man to believe in God, to hope in him, and to love him above all 
else. Are you seeing a general trend here? What does it mean to make God your God? It means to put him first in everything. I would argue to you that I think it's even embedded in the command itself. Let me back up here a couple of steps. Have you ever really thought about the wording of this command and what it implies? Here it is. Say it with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods how? Before me. It doesn't say you shall have no other gods. It says you shall have no other gods before me. Some translations will put beside me. Well, let's think about that. What does it mean to be before someone? It means they come first, right? Them first me second. If you are before me, you are in a position of preeminence. Let's go beside. What does it mean to be beside me? Equals. Shared. No greater value put on one or the other, walking hand in hand with equal value. Can we call that diversification of your gods? It's fascinating to me as I think about this commandment that it actually doesn't say, you shall have no other gods. And, and to think that it might imply or assume that I have other gods feels very wrong to me. It kind of bristles me a little bit. It seems to go against the grain of everything that I have been taught about the Christian way of life. But I think God knows us better than we know ourselves. And I think he's tapping into something. And what he's tapping into is this. That no matter what you claim to believe, that no matter what you say, no matter what jewelry you wear, you are a polytheist. Each of us has multiple gods in our lives. That is, if you are to define God the way these great Christian leaders and teaching guides of the past have guided us, who is it that you fear? Who is it that you love? What is it that you trust? My oldest daughter, Reagan, is getting married in a couple of weeks. That's a mind blow. <laughs> Many of you know she's just come off of a recent cancer diagnosis. What I haven't announced publicly, though I have like through Facebook and means like that, yes, I do hop on once every five years, <laughs> is that after her last round of chemo, they cannot find a trace of cancer in her body anymore. <laughs> Praise God, right? We prayed to God so tenaciously through that process and many times didn't pray tenaciously at all, just stepping back going, God, it's in your hands, it's on you, it's not in us, what can we do? Right? But I'm telling you, I'm very glad for many of the ways that God worked. Supernaturally, I believe that God does work supernaturally and he does work even in things that seem very natural and supernatural kind of ways. Praise be to God for that. You know what else I'm grateful for? Blue Cross Blue Shield. Dr. Pont, Dr. Tanner, Dr. Sharif, the Northwestern Medical System, Carbotaxanol. You know how grateful I am for Carbotaxanol? Do you know what Carbotaxanol is? Look it up, it's chemotherapy. 
how easy it is to put our trust in those kinds of things. How will we get through this? How will she get healed? How do we go about getting her the cure that our souls are longing for? How are you guilty of calling out to Blue Cross Blue Shield? To the medical system, where do you put your trust? Where do you put your hope? I will tell you that we put our trust and hope in those kinds of things. But oh, I pray, I hope not before God. Oh, I pray, I hope not before God. Because to honor the first commandment is to put God first above all things. And while many things in this world can prove good and true, where does ultimate devotion lie? Where are we truly seeking our hope and answer in life? Or as Luther would say, where are we setting our heart and putting our trust in? That is the question I want you to ask yourself today as we talk about this. Where do you set your heart? What is it that you put your trust in? Martin Luther will say, that I tell you is truly your God because that which you seek first, that you put your heart on and your trust in, that no matter what other definitions you want to bring to the table, fundamentally boils down to the God that you serve and worship in your life. My dad was great with money. In many ways, money was my dad's God. Correction. It was his idol. It was a means, a tool, or a vehicle by which he could worship what was more central to him, and that was autonomy, freedom, options, the ability to do what he wanted, when he wanted, answerable to no one and able to walk away from any employer because he was not dependent on them. My dad was so obsessed by being the master of his own destiny that when health robbed him of that ability, he psychologically couldn't handle it and killed himself. He put his hope in a false God. Praise be to God that my dad died a believer. That my dad did come from a place of self-sufficient atheism to meeting and knowing God again. But he struggled to his very ending day with which God came first. I'm not here to kick my dad in the teeth because I think you do the same thing. And I do too. All of us in some way are guilty on setting our hearts on things and putting our hope and trust in them before Yahweh and his son Christ himself. And that I tell you is your God. But God says to you, no, don't do it. These idols, these gods, no other gods before me. There's a brief, a brief video that I want to show you here this morning. 
that hints at this. There's things I really like about in this video and agree with and things that I don't agree with as well. You can wrestle through it yourself and we'll debrief it a little bit. But hopefully it's a little bit of a help for you in understanding what the Bible talks about when it gets into the topic of idolatry. Let's kill the lights and then let's roll it and take a look. I was watching TV the other day and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. It exists in every day and every age. Now, a point of qualification. I'm not here to knock football at all. And if that's what you took out of this, I think you've missed the point. You can substitute football with anything that is the prime mover in your heart, the prime passion the prime love, the prime act of devotion, the prime thing that moves you and motivates you and that you give yourself to, the prime thing that defines you, that, to parrot Martin Luther, I will tell you, is your God. Or maybe to understand it through a different way of approach, let me explain it like this. A few weeks ago, I shared with you a very pivotal Old Testament passage that is foundational for understanding who God is, the relationship that he wants us to have with him, and what the Christian experience is about. And it goes like this. It's called the Great Shema. I made you stand up then. I'm not going to make you stand up today. I probably should, but I won't. And it goes like this. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, which translates to Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is chased by this, and you shall love the Lord your God, and if you know it, stumble with me, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Let me say it again, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your might. How much? All. There are many things in this world that you will love. 
There are many things in this world that you should love. There are many things in this world that you should pour your passion into. There are things that you should love with your heart, with your soul, and with your might, as long as all is reserved for God alone because you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no other God beside me. God wants your devotion, your passion, your love, your trust, your commitment to be first and foremost in him. And through that, with everything to follow, what is it that is your passion here today that moves you and molds you? I have seen it to be so multiple in form in my life and probably in yours for some people, maybe like my dad. It's a sense of autonomy. It's a sense of freedom. Maybe it's through an idol of money. For others of you, it's your ability. For others of you, it might be success. I have seen people idolize their families, that their family becomes everything to them, and they spend their life in a desperate quest trying to achieve this vision of family. I have seen people do it with a significant other, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a husband or a wife. I've seen people do it with so many different kinds of things. And let me tell you today, they are wonderful gifts of God, but they make lousy gods. And they will never fundamentally give you what you are ultimately looking for. They will never fundamentally be faithful in the way that God is. You shall have no other gods before me. It is a different way of life. Now the commandment goes on. It gets chased by something here. That's how it begins. But let's look at these next sentences together. If you were to read this in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, the two places where the list of the Ten Commandments are ordered, It goes on to say, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am what kind of God? Do you know what it means to be jealous? To want what rightfully belongs to you. It's a little bit different than envy. Envy is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. But jealousy, hmm, a little bit different. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I want you. I want your heart, your soul, your might. I want all of it. And he goes on. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and a thousand generations, uh, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, my bet is your mind fixated on one place in that verse, and we'll get to that momentarily. Before we get there, it's worth mentioning. This is where lists of the Ten Commandments most frequently diverge. If you've never looked up the Ten Commandments, do it sometime and see how they're ordered. 
not everyone orders them the same because there's more than 10 commandments. And they're not really even all commandments. If you were with us last week, there are more 10 topics, 10 areas of focus, 10 ideas. If you grew up in Presbyterian churches, Christian Reformed churches, most non-denominational churches, Baptist churches, or in a Jewish synagogue, they would make this commandment number one and two. And if you go, well, you can't go to a Christian bookstore anymore. They don't exist. But if you were to time warp back or go on Amazon and buy wall art for your house, the Ten Commandments, they would probably be ordered this way as one and two. Catholics, Lutherans, Orthodox, some other church bodies, they often followed that great church leader, Augustine, back in the day in his ordering, making this number one. The idle thing is an extension of no other gods before me, all as one package. That's just an aside in case it confuses you because if you dig in, it's worth knowing. But what I'm more interested in digging into is what it says in the third paragraph here today. It's fascinating. If you were to read Luther's small catechism, when he explains the Ten Commandments, basically it's like, here's the Ten Commandments, these ten ideas about what a different kind of life looks like with God He takes a little time to try to explain it in the most simple terms. We've seen it already. We should fear, love, and trust God above all things. But he starts with a phrase right before it, and it's uniform in all the Ten Commandments. And it goes like this. It says, what does this mean? And every time he answers, he answers like this. We should fear and love God so that. You should love no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we trust and love in God above all things, right? You shall not murder. We should fear and love God so that. You shall not commit adultery. We should fear and love God so that. Are you getting the idea? That fear of God and love of God is what should motivate us in this different way of life. Let's break it down. I find in this world there are fear-based Christians and there are love-based Christians. But it is a rare unicorn in this world when you find the person who is both and can do the two in tension. Both are significant. I want to read you a little article here today. It's an excerpt out of a book that I like. I can share it with you if you like it enough that you want the excerpt too. But let me just read it with you today where the author talks about this. He entitles it, The Fear Folk and the Love People. The fear folk are people who are so busy pounding their fists about the fear of the Lord that they also forget that God is love. Quote, It's quite possible that you put on this mask of the fear of the Lord, but you're actually just a jerk. (laughs) You just don't like people. It's possible. The love people, likewise, have their own blinders on. These are the Christians who ignore Christ the judge. He's not here to be judgmental, they suggest. Rather, he's here to be your intimate friend and ministry partner. To the love people, God wants to be in a relationship with you, and he loves everyone equally in the same way. But you look at Scripture... And you realize that getting close to the living God is a fearful thing. 
Paul's motivation in his letter to the Corinthians was to get, this, to get the people to see that God was both entirely love and kind and also entirely an object of fear. Both of these ideas are necessary if one is to truly understand and worship this God that we say we believe in. Because I will tell you, it is easy to make even an idol of God himself and to substitute the true God with a God of our own imagination and making. We can't understand love without also understanding that the penalty Christ paid on the cross, this penal substitutionary atonement for our total depravity, was the most loving act ever committed in the history of humanity. It was an act far more loving than those portrayed in the usual smattering of Buddy Jesus or Intimacy with God books, where God is your therapist, and there you lie on his cosmic chase lounge, waiting for him to dispense beauty or easy solutions until the last grain of sand runs out on the hourglass and your time is up. We are to fear and love God because God is love and God is fearful to behold. I love how the scriptures unfold this. Have you ever noticed that when God appears to people, the first thing they do is fall on their face? Do you ever notice that the first thing an angel has to say, who is a mere reflection of God himself, is do not be afraid? Why do you think he says that? Because when you stand in the presence of the living God, it is terrifying. It is terrifying that there is a cosmic power, there is a cosmic all power in this universe who is entrusted with meeting out justice and standing before him face to face, if that does not strike healthy terror in your life, may I submit, you have not looked closely into the face of God yet or into your own condition. And yet God is love. Love and merciful beyond belief. And I think there's something tucked in this command to help us navigate the tension. God is a God who punishes, but God is also a God who shows love and kindness and saves. Let's figure out the ratio. To what degree will God punish? To the third and fourth generation. To what degree will God show love? To a thousand generation. So as you understand the fear and love of God, we can say that God is to be feared and that punishment is to be feared. To a degree of three or maybe four. But the love of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, could be understood to a degree of a thousand. How would you? How would that compare? And this is why people like Martin Luther, in particular, would say that the fear of God and the love of God are both key attributes or key expressions to the attributes of who He are, but they are not in equal tension. Because the way to understand God primarily is a God who 
loves. He is a God who upholds justice. He is a God who is fearful. He is a God who is terrifying. But if you want to know who this God is, look at the bar graph and understand what God is revealing to you. God lays these 10 principles out, showing us a different way of life. Something he is inviting us into, a way of living different than the world around us with multiple gods and multiple idols and hedging our bets. You shall have no other gods before me. Love me, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your Let me be first in everything. It's fascinating that the way some even interpret this commandment or choose to translate it is not even as a command at all, but more as a reality statement. You'll have no other gods before me because when you see who God is, in his love and kindness, his faithfulness and justice, his reliability. There ain't even a thought of putting something before him. May you see the face of God. May you see him for who he truly is. May you be so captivated by your vision that he consumes your passion, heart, and soul that he captures you and becomes your first in everything. That's the foundational block for the different way of life that these commands or ideas are getting at. I hope it's yours today.